Go back to uh, Romans chapter 13 and let's uh, advance our study of that chapter. Uh, the um, At least the first seven verses of Romans 13 have to do with God and government, uh, a, a pretty much um, controversial uh, topic, particularly in these heated political uh, climate in which we find ourselves. Uh, it's I've, I've sought to to tell you that it is it is a subject that is that is complex. It is nuanced, and uh, it uh, off it faces us with some pretty naughty choices at times. And um, but we'll um, we'll try to sort some of it out. The text before us tonight are verses three and four. You uh, follow as I read those two verses. Uh, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Several issues... Um, contained in that in those couple of verses. Uh, one of them has to do with the whole issue of capital punishment. We'll try to take a look at that next week. Um, but there's there's plenty to deal with tonight. Before we get into these, these two verses, I, I wanted to um, remind you that they are written by a man, the Apostle Paul, who was on numerous occasions imprisoned by a godless government, and most believe that Paul was eventually executed by that same godless government. So here is a man who had paid a price for his um, his gospel stands and still writes what he's writing here. The idea or the, the knowledge that it's Paul who wrote this should at least alter, at least in small ways, our perspective on what he has to say. Now, guys, what he does in verses 3 and 4 is give us another reason to obey the government. He mentions in verse 2, not only will you have to deal with God if you uh, disobey this government, but you will also be, you'll have to face the state or that government. That's what he's saying in verses 3 and 4. That state who is given the power to enforce laws given even what is known as the power of the sword. The power of government is um, is expressed by this symbol of the sword. Now, guys, you may not know this, but there's a lot of folks that have written a whole lot of stuff on what's known as the power of the sword. What does that mean? That introduces the whole idea of capital punishment, which I said, Lord willing, we'll get to next week. Um, but the, the, the authority of the government is illustrated or expressed in a symbol, the symbol of the power of the sword. Now, guys, first of all, the, the whole idea of power, oh, it's an intoxicating uh, thing. Um, I always uh, wonder if this thing's... See there? Um, I always hold my breath to see if this thing's going to work. Um, yeah. Um, the Greek word that is found there is not the normal one. Um dunamis for power. Uh, this is the Greek word from which we get our English word dynamite out of. Uh, dunamis is dynamite. That's the normal Greek word for power. That's not the one that's in this text. It's the word exousia, which is better translated with the English word authority, 
which my translation have, but some of your translations have the word power. But the whole subject is is uh, summarized under this this um, this topic of the power of the sword. Um, again, the word is not mentioned, but the concept certainly is. Um, power. The intoxicating uh, allure of power, and it is it resides in the hands of government. I'm I'm I'm, I'm uh, digressing for a moment, but have you ever heard of Potomac fever? You know what Potomac fever is? It's when you get elected to be a, a, a government official and you move to Washington for like a congressman, and then um, you want to hold on to that position um, for all it's worth. That's called Potomac fever. Because you begin to taste power. And the, the intoxication of that taste of power means you want to hold on to it. And that's what's called Potomac, you know, the Potomac River once through DC, you got that. Well, that's what, that's what Potomac fever is. Um, but guys, power means force. Which, um, none of us like being applied to us. We all want power, but we don't want it applied to us, even as parents, we're we're reluctant to 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 use force with our children. I mean, we want to we want to reason with the little tyrants. Yeah, how's that going for you? How's that working out for you? <laughs> uh, I hope you understand that uh, the, the the scriptures do put some power in your hands as parents too. The power of the rod, uh, and it, it, I mean, I'm not trying to make fun. It is. It is a power that parents are to wield, and when they fail to, because they're listening to Dr. Spock, they, they are ignoring um, a, a whole um, provision that God has made in terms of uh, performing as a parent. But, it, but back to the issue of government power, guys. It is not only totalitarian governments that operate by force. All governments operate by force. Ours might be one that's kinder and gentler in the operation of force, but it, they all operate under the principle of force. For instance, the IRS can exercise some pretty hefty force, can they not? Um, policemen, when they stop you and give you a ticket. I, I have a son-in-law who is a builder. And um, I mean, he lives in absolute fear of code enforcement officials who come by and can absolutely shut him down because they have the power of, of government behind them. Um, the, that power, according to this text, ladies and gentlemen, is given to the state by God. It is not given to the church. The church does not have this power. The, the church is never to operate on the basis of force, as does Islam today. And by the way, the Christian church has got her sad uh, chapters in history where she operated by force too. It's called the Crusades. And it's one of the, one of the darker chapters in the history of the Christian church. But the church does not have this power. This power is entrusted by God to the church, excuse me, to the state. Now, however, that power that resides in the hands of government is not to be wielded in any way whatsoever. It is, it is not an unbridled power. For instance, it is not to be used to advance evil. If you'll notice in verse 3, um, 
Rulers are not a terror to good, but would you have, then do good, you will receive his approval. The, the, the whole idea is, do what is good, because government will support that. So, by way of implication, it is not going to support, it's going to punish evil. When good is done, the state supports that, or the state is to support that. Uh, only evil is the state to punish. Um, but it is also not to be, it, it is also a power that is to be wielded for the common good of all its citizenry. But now guys, that term is a very vague term. The common good of the citizenry. For instance, um, in protecting our country from the attacks of outsiders, does the government have the right to conscript its citizens to go fight. I mean, what do you think about that? Because, ladies and gentlemen, when I was in college, people all over America were burning their draft cards. You remember that? I mean, if you're my age, you remember that. Saying, in essence, that the government does not have the right to draft me and send me into some kind of harm's way. But is the power of the government to protect or for the wheel it for the common good of the citizens, does it extend to the place where it can draft its own citizens and tell them to fight? Or how about this? Does that power, wielded for the common good of the citizenry, uh, can it be used to redirect the economy in wartime? It was in World War II, as some of you know. Is that, is it legitimate in the, in its efforts to to protect the citizenry, or for the common good of the citizenry, to redirect that economy in peacetime. You see, guys, those don't have easy answers. For instance, the idea, does the government have the right to conscript its citizens to fight? I think most of us, most of us would say, well, of course it does. Glad it did, you know, and and, uh, we won the war. And But back in the Vietnam War, ladies and gentlemen... People weren't thinking like that. Now, um, what, what, how far does the government's right to protect, or to use its power to protect the common good of the citizens, how far does it extend? That's pretty complex. And there's no easy answers to that, folks. I'm simply saying that the, that God has put a power in the hands of the government and she is not, it is not an unbridled power. She is not to use it for the advance of good, but she is to use it for the common good of the citizenry. But how, but what does that mean? Uh, what about, what about, um, protecting or using it for the common good uh, against evildoers from within? Not Japan attacking uh, Pearl Harbor. But evildoers from within, the maintaining of social order. You know, guys, what if your only option is anarchy? I can tell you this. It seems to me that particularly in the um, the major prophets, the, the Old Testament prophets seem to prefer any rule or any king to abject anarchy. Guys, Verse 3 and 4 seems to speak to the, to the whole issue of nothing is as bad as anarchy. Even a bad government. 
um, there is to be a legitimate function of government. Stay with this sentence, guys, because it's going to take us far afield. A legitimate function of government is to punish evil and reward good behavior. That's what these two texts say. If you're not, if you don't want to fear the government, then obey. I mean, folks, have you ever been driving down the street and you see radar set up on the side of the street and you think, oh, but then you realize, oh, I'm driving the limit. So I don't have to fear them because I'm obeying them. But if I'm not driving the speed limit, then go. That's the, the essence of the text. You don't want to fear the, the, the power of the sword, then obey the government. A power given to that government by God. But it is not an absolute power. Now, guys, having said all of that, it brings us face to face with a very poignant, at least in my mind, poignant issue. If the government is to punish evildoers and is to support good, then what we've done is, in essence, suggest that there is something that allows us to define what is evil and what is good. There is some kind of standard. Paul even assumes that kind of standard that's in existence by which good can be defined and evil can be defined. There is, an, there is a standard that must be in place before any of this can take place. Guys, let me digress just, just somewhat. Guys, have you ever heard, um, um, I mean, when, when, when people talk about their opposition to the existence of God, probably numero uno, the number one reason why people reject the existence of God is because there's so much evil in the world. Do you know that that argument in itself is self-defeating? How do, does one define evil if no God exists? To have an evil and to have a good, there's got to be a law. And for there to be a law, there must be a lawgiver. If there is no God, then there is no evil, ladies and gentlemen. When Paul de- describes what the legitimate function of government is, he assumes that there is a moral standard. Remove that moral standard and chaos reigns. Guys, years ago, um, Francis Schaeffer is the name that will ring a bell with some of you. Francis Schaeffer is dead now, but Francis Schaeffer um, went all over the country uh, with a with a conference called "How shall we how how shall we how should we then live how should we li- then live?" And the the essence of the whole conference was this: that America no longer observes a Christian consensus. You know what that means? You, do, you, you know what, he, what he's talking about, guys? Um, guys, have you ever seen this? 
Lex Rex, Samuel Rutherford. It's an Italian phrase. I mean, I mean, a, a, um, a Latin phrase. That's Italian. That's Italy. Uh, Lex Rex, law is king. Gang, um, apart from law being king, then chaos is your only other other option. Gang, um, what what Francis Schaeffer was saying is that there was a time in this country, although this country was not a Christian nation, and I know that many of you will disagree with me, but I don't think this country was ever, 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 ever. I don't know what the intent of the founders was. I don't know that. But it's never been a Christian nation. It's been a it's been a, a safe harbor for Christians, but it's never been a Christian nation. Now, but we acted like it was. We acted as if Lex Rex existed. We acted as if law was king. That there was a law, a, a standard, which was adopted by everybody. Schaefer calls that a Christian consensus. It's a perspective. It's an outlook. It's the way to view things. Ladies and gentlemen, do you realize that as, um, as early as 30 years ago, homosexuality was considered a psychiatric deviancy? It, it, was, it was considered a psychiatric disorder. In all of the psychiatric manuals, it was considered a disorder. Where did that come from? It came from a Christian consensus. It came from a populace that said, well, I mean, not, not consciously did they say it, but no, I'm, I'm not a Christian. But that morality that Christianity stands for is the right thing. Or Lex Rex, law rules. When Paul says to the government, punish evildoers, Reward good people. He's assuming that this exists. Remove this. And anarchy is what you're facing. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no longer a moral standard by which evil can be defined and good can be defined as well. America's love for relativism or the fact that there are no absolutes. I mean, which one of those do you understand? Uh, America's insistence that there are no absolutes. That's called relativism. Not only is that a threat to Christianity, it is a threat to the social order as we know it. Ladies and gentlemen, the government can't even do this because the government cannot define evil and good any longer because we've insisted that no absolutes exist or that there there is no law, there is no standard. Gang, governments do not develop Morality. Governments punish immorality. Morality is something that comes from without. Morality 
is revealed. Can I, can I show you that, guys, um, if you're still awake? <clears throat> uh, go to the book of Leviticus. <clears throat> um, just as an aside, if you uh, ever... If you ever try to read the Bible through, somewhere around what we're going to read right now is where you give up the attempt. Um, because Leviticus, I mean, um, guys, um, gosh, uh, chapter 14, the laws for cleansing lepers. And it tells you if you've got a white thing on your skin and, and it's got hair in the middle of it and, you know, and what the priest should do. And, and we're just, oh no. And, and then you, then you come over, um, the laws for cleansing houses in chapter 14. And then, <laughs> this is not funny, but um, in chapter 15, the laws about bodily discharges. New. I mean, everybody kind of, you know, well, let me get to the New Testament now uh, when, when they get here. But guys, what you get in, um, oh, starting at about chapter 13. Um, yes, uh, starting about chapter 13 is a... Oh, I don't know, seven or eight chapter uh, discussion of various laws that are to exist within Israel. Uh, 13 is the laws about leprosy and what you happen if you do this and, you know, if it's just a bald spot, you know, and what the priest does. And then if you if you got these emissions or discharges and what that happens and, you know, gosh, what you got to do about that. And um, then uh, 16 is a great chapter on the Day of Atonement. Then you um, you come to... Um, Chapter 17, and you get laws about uh, eating against blood. And then, oh, my, we come to chapter 18. We come to chapter 18. Oh, man, this is really bad. This is really not fun stuff. Unlawful sexual relationships in chapter 18. Um, Look at uh, verse 22 of Leviticus. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, ladies and gentlemen, where did that come from? The government did not discover that. That is something that is revealed. Gang, if there's anything we don't want anybody meddling with, it's our sexuality. Don't anybody tell me about my sexuality. Oh, no, no, you leave me alone. But ladies and gentlemen, God steps into the fray and says, you will not, you will not, you will not, you will not. Now, guys, here that's not my point. But look in chapter 19. You shall, uh, verse 1, uh, verse 2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Um, then he tells you something about uh, revering your mother and your father. Um, uh, when you when you offer a sacrifice, peace offering, da, da, da. Right, then we come down to uh, verse 9. It's talking about the law of gleaning, providing for the poor. Look at 11. You shall not steal. Uh, verse 12, you shall not swear. Uh, verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor, rob him. Verse 15, you shall not do any, ju- any injustice. Um, then you've got uh, 19, you shall keep my statutes. Then, uh, by the way, uh, in chapter 20, you got the whole idea of homosexuality announced again in chapter 20, verse 13. Do you see all that? Law after law after law after law after law after law that is to be used to maintain social order. But ladies and gentlemen, that's not my point. Here's what I want you to see. Look at um, chapter 19. 
God steps into the fray and says, don't reap your land. Look at verse 10. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. Notice, in what, in what does he root that law? I am the Lord your God. Verse 11. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not swear. I am the Lord. Verse uh, 14. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Verse uh, 16. You shall not go around a slanderer. Why? I am the Lord. Verse uh, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear. Why? Because I am the Lord. Do you see that? Do you understand what's going on? Law is revealed. It's not discovered. And the one who has exousia to define the evil and the good is the one who steps into the marketplace and says, you don't do this because I said so. And once that is eliminated, ladies and gentlemen, we are facing social anarchy. Yeah, you've got a dysfunctional government. You bet your britches you do. It's more dysfunctional than you ever know because reward the good? Who's the good? I'll tell you who's the bad. You are. You religious zealot, you. You religious fundamentalist, you. You believe that there's only one way to go to heaven, don't you? How could you do something like that? You're the problem. Do you see, ladies and gentlemen? Paul steps in. He says, all right, God has given government a, a power. A power to ex- that extends to the wielding of the sword. And it is to be used in this way. It is to encourage good behavior. And it is to punish wickedness. And as Paul writes that, he assumes everybody understands. And Francis Schaeffer comes along someplace in the early 70s and says, this is gone. There's no more Christian consensus, ladies and gentlemen. No more does the world think, you know what's right and wrong. No, no. And so the government is charged with rewarding good and punishing bad And the government can't even define it. So, so you want to replace the Democrats with the Republicans, do you? Have at it. It ain't going to help you. Because this is gone. That's why I say, ladies and gentlemen, you want to you politic all you want? Go ahead. But the solution is in the proclamation of King Jesus who steps into our lives and says, you don't do that. Why? 
Why don't I do that? Because I said so, says King Jesus. Because I am the Lord. Morality is something that is revealed. It comes from outside and drops on us. Left to themselves, every unregenerate government will establish immorality as as the rule. Bill Clinton goes out and sleeps with Monica Lewinsky or whatever he did. And that doesn't matter. Because we don't have any law, we don't have any standard anymore by which good behavior can be rewarded and evil can be punished. It's gone, ladies and gentlemen. So you think you've got political problems? Let me tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, in my opinion, that's all this is, just a little one voice crying in the wilderness. In 30 years, you ain't going to want to live on this planet. Because... The, the, the further that relativism spreads, then who defines? It's not going to be you. It's not going to be us. And it's, it's going to be left in the hands of godless men and women who wants nobody to step into their lives and say that is wrong. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, take the issue of homosexuality, which I think is sadly, sadly abused by the Christian church. You've heard me say this before. I'll say it again. It is a, it is a scandal that the Christian church so abominates homosexuality, but celebrates, laughs at, glorifies adultery. While we race out to see sex in the city and see how cute she looks, And then we vilify, vilify a homosexual. Ladies and gentlemen, hypocrisy, utter hypocrisy. They're both sexual sins, folks. But, but my point is this. What is, what is the, what is the gay community? By the, no, not the gay community. What is the United States saying to us now? You have no right to. To tell me what I can do with my body? You have no right to those definitions. You have no right to that. Why? (laughs) It's gone. It's gone. And so we're living in the detritus, the leftovers of the Christian consensus. And the further we get away from it, the more that chaos rules. Guys, it was... I'm guessing at this, you can... can, um, you can um, you can alter this somewhat, but the Christian Francis Schaeffer said that the Christians' consensus held sway until somewhere in the '60s, and then somewhere after the sexual revolution, then um, then it no longer um, it no longer existed, and so the longer it goes, and the more the Christian Church remains silent. I want to say something I said again. Not only is the absence of absolutes a threat to Christianity, it is a threat to social order 
as we know it. And that frightens me. I mean, that's, that's a pretty frightening prospect. Guys, governments can't create morality within their, within its citizens. Guess who's supposed to do that? That would be the church. And by the way, we can't create it. But we can, via proclamation of the gospel, establish the beauty of morality. You know, guys, um, when I first became a Christian, um, I was 22 years old, and and um, the guy that really kind of discipled me is a guy by the name of Jim Bland. He's, he, and his wife Linda was Susie's good friend, and we, we just spent a whole lot of time with Jim. And and, um, and and one day, I was really wrestling with this whole thing of uh, a call to the ministry. And so I was just you know flopping. And one day I, I I broke down and wept on the Sunshine Parkway right before I got off at Miami, and just called the church, and nobody could see me, and it was a mess. And so finally, that later on that afternoon, I finally. Got off work and, and uh, found Jim Bland. And I remember him saying something to me then that I didn't understand then. Not only do I understand it today, um, I would agree with it. He said, he said this, and it's not that profound, but I just... If there were no heaven or hell, if there were no heaven or no hell, I would still want to live by the statutes and the ordinances of the living God. Wouldn't you? They're beautiful. They make life work. They help us integrate with reality, don't they? Now, there is a heaven and there is a hell. (laughs) But guys, once the gospel and its influence gets removed, it's a matter of time before... Immorality is is made law. And then we're really going to face some difficult decisions. Let's grab Our Father, forgive us that um, we have uh, twiddled our thumbs and um, made ourselves more comfortable while the world is um, heading into oblivion promoting things that were unthinkable uh, 30 years ago. And um, I pray, oh God, that you will give the church her voice back, a real clear one, a real clarion voice, where, where we can speak the truth in love. Would you enable us to do that? And would you empower us by the indwelling, dominating Holy Spirit of God? Do that, Father, before uh, this country um, inflicts such great wounds on herself that she is beyond saving. Might we be a part of that grand solution that only you can offer. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.